if you're visiting or new, uh, we have been kind of once a month uh, going over a series on how to help the poor without hurting them. We remember our loved ones who are long gone, oftentimes by what they used to say. I still use quips that my dad would spout off, you know, and he died 30-some years ago. Christie's dad had a saying, and he actually put it on a plaque, and we still have this plaque, which says, if you aim at nothing, you will hit it every time. And it is really a good idea to have an idea of what your goal is, what you're trying to achieve. And so in this area, it's really kind of important. If we want to be successful, we've got to have a better grasp on our mission in ministry to the poor. So we're going to review a little bit. And if you look on the back of your handout, you'll see some what I've termed black letter insights. And I explained last time that these are kind of key things that we want to try to retain through this kind of stretched out series so that it's not just something that's faded in the back. We want to learn something from this series about how to minister. And on that, you'll see a definition of poverty, which we, for our purposes, at its core we've defined as broken relationships with God, self, others, and God's creation, both on the personal and the systemic levels. And those levels are government, society, economics, and faith. We derived this definition from application of our worldview, including the doctrines of creation and the fall. We learned from Mike's teaching in late April on Colossians 1 that Jesus Christ not only created all things, both in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, and holds all things together, in other words, He sustains all things, but also that He reconciles all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And in studying the doctrines of creation and the fall, we emphasize that we, all of us, were created to live in right relationship with God, self, others, and his creation. But the fall of mankind has broken those relationships for all of us. Today, we want to focus on the good news that God reconciles people to himself. He heals us. In other words, He redeems us. We also need to explore our role that we play in the redemption of others. When a tragedy like an earthquake or hurricane or a tsunami strikes somewhere, of course, it is appropriate and necessary for nonprofits like the Red Cross or parachurch organizations like Samaritan's Purse or World Vision, or even governments to provide immediate and necessary help, like for food and water and shelter and medical care. But dealing with 
ongoing poverty is a much more difficult, if not urgent, problem to solve. Whether it's the World Bank throwing money at third world countries, or our own welfare system in the states, or Christians trying to help children in orphanages or at trash dumps. Simply throwing money at the problem is not only ineffective in the long run, but it may also make the problem worse. How so? Well, that financial and material support can actually create a debilitating dependence of poor nations, poor people groups or individuals on well-meaning but naive wealthier nations, organizations, and Christians in particular. Just as significantly, that support can rob the poor of the dignity of work and providing for themselves as Scripture, as we've covered, clearly communicates we all should be doing. If we shift our thinking now, kind of a paradigm shift, and if poverty is instead rooted in broken relationships, then the solution to poverty is rooted not in throwing out money, but in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, and putting all things back into right relationships to reconcile, to heal, to make peace. Now, to be abundantly clear here, this reconciliation will not be complete until the final coming of the kingdom when, as John tells us in Revelation 21, that a loud voice, or uh, there will be a new heaven and a new earth, a loud voice from the throne proclaims, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, because the first things have passed away. Until that happens, Christians may disagree on how much progress we will make as God's ambassadors. But there should be no debate about the responsibility of the church, his body, his bride, to bear witness to that coming kingdom through our words and our deeds, our talk and our walk. If you would open your your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 5, we want to take a look here. This passage makes it clear that there is a mission, a goal, or a specific purpose that has been given to the church and to believers. And we're going to start there in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to Himself through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled 
to God. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So, if we wish to alleviate poverty, we've got to first determine what that term or phrase means. Now, we can understand how people can jump to conclusions when, they, when they're first exposed to poverty. Whether of the mild sort that we see in American ghettos, or of the more serious type that we might see on the streets of any third world country, or of the acute variety that you might see in a remote village where they live in mud huts without plumbing or electricity, without adequate food, sometimes starving. Our immediate emotional reaction is, of course, to feel guilty about the disparity between our lifestyle and theirs. So, our initial desire is to make these people more like us. Middle or upper middle class Americans, you know, with all the essentials. You know, like lots of food, a couple of cars, flat screens, lots of eye things, a house with central air, and of course, two cats in the yard. But before we do that, we may want to make full disclosure to our intended beneficiaries. In exchange for theirs, what would they get for our culture? Why, all the benefits of a frenzied, hurried lifestyle, high rates of divorce and absentee fathers, numerous addictions, including drugs and alcohol and sex, tabloid fascinations with glittery or brawny idols who live immoral and, frankly, miserable lives, obesity, other rampant Western diseases, and on top of all that, heavily medicated mental illnesses. I mean, who wouldn't want our culture? All right, I know I'm being a little facetious here. But seriously, North Americans have not figured it all out. But also, providing all things to all people can get a little pricey, as we are now finding out about our new health care system. An easier, perhaps less expensive option would be to simply give the poor enough money to survive. But then we recall our own welfare system, whose recipients are far better off than most of the world, yet their lives have been relegated to generational hopelessness. You know, there has got to be something better out there. Really, there does. So our goal is not to make the world's poor just like us, nor to deprive them of the dignity through welfare dependency. Rather, our goal and the definition we should be looking at for poverty alleviation is to, this should be on your sheet, move people closer to honoring God by living in right relationships with Him, self, others, and his creation. Essentially, poverty alleviation can be summed up as the ministry of reconciliation. At this point, the pragmatist among us might say, yeah, sounds really spiritual, but you know you're forgetting something. Reality is that these people are living in squalor. 
This is kind of like Christian myopia, they might say. You know, where you say, hey, bro, be warmed and filled. See ya in eternity. And to which I would say, true. If all we do is speak or hear this definition, not in agreement, and then go home to our easy chairs and our space book. But if you wish to truly live the Christian life, we've got some things to do. This definition provides a foundation for actually helping the poor without hurting them. Now, we just defined poverty alleviation. Now, let's look at the more practical side of material poverty alleviation. Taking what we've learned so far and the definition offered by the authors of the book that we're studying, Helping Without Hurting, or When Helping Hurts, uh, is this. Working to reconcile the four relational, foundational relationships so that the poor may fulfill their calling to glorify God through work to support themselves and their families to the extent possible. Okay? Some key points about this definition. Because biblical material poverty alleviation is focused on real, lasting solutions, it is not primarily a handout of money or food to provide sustenance whether for a day or for generations. Sure, remember, temporary aid in the form of money or food or medical care is necessary in a crisis. But if we really care about people, more than just assuaging our collective guilt, our goal has to be to empower people to earn for themselves through work as God created them, again, where there are no significant disabilities or obstacles. Another key concept we see in this definition for both the materially poor and wealthy is that work is an act of worship. When we glorify God in our work, we praise Him for our gifts and abilities, and we see both our effort and its fruits as offering, offerings to God, then work becomes worship. Surely anyone can work in order to glorify themselves or to acquire more. In that case, work has become idolatry. So, the lesson here is that for whom we work makes a huge, huge difference. Finally, how we work also makes a difference. Defining poverty alleviation as the reconciliation of these basic relationships should shape the methods that our church and related ministries should use in pursuit of that goal. At the heart of our methods have to be, one, our attitudes, and two, our motivation. So what is the requisite or necessary attitude? If we go into a poor community with an attitude of the all-knowing, wealthy, and capable, or a poor nation as the people from America with the money, the energy, and the know-how that they need from us, we will have missed our calling. Remember, we all are broken in our relationships 
our attitude should be one of humility. That we have things to learn alongside the materially poor. It is not us, but God that does the fixing. So, just what is humility to a believer? A couple of years ago, we went over a series on the Beatitudes. And we studied the verse, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And we learned what that much maligned word meek really means. The Greek word there means humble, gentle, self-control to resist reaction. The security, the internal fortitude or courage to avoid retaliation, resentment, or vengeance. The attitude of such a person requires strong self-control and a quiet, willing submission to God. In fact, biblical meekness goes beyond self-control to power under God's control. It is sometimes rendered gentle strength, from which we get the word gentleman. But our sin nature takes us into willful and carnal rebellion and defensive reaction to protect our own dignity. We entitled that message, Blessed are the meek, for they shall die. Jerry thought. To explain, we used an example from agriculture. In John 12, Jesus said, Except a grain of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. Now, the paradox of that last verse and this, this passage is striking. You love your life, you lose it. You hate it in this world, you gain it eternally. But there's also an important analogy here. Death is necessary not only to produce wheat, but to produce meekness. Inside each grain of wheat is a wheat germ designed uh, to grow into a wheat stalk and produce more wheat. And for this to occur, the grain must be buried, planted. And that starts the process of breaking open the outer husk of the grain. And that allows the moisture and oxygen to enter in, nourishing the wheat in what we call the process of germination. Literally, the grain of wheat must have its body broken and die itself in order to produce more wheat. Paul put it this way in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. But for Christ, for, for the Christ in me to bear the fruit of meekness, I must die to self daily. I've got to stop focusing on what I want, my importance, and start seeking, seeking God's best and His purpose in all areas of life, the life that, frankly, He's given me. In Luke 9, uh, at verse 23, Jesus said this, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And this, just like in John 12, he says, For whosoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. If you would turn to Philippians 2, we want to make an application here about how to become meek. 
And I would suggest that there's no better way to do that than simply follow the leader. We've got to take on the attitude of Christ. Starting there in verse 5 of Philippians 2, Paul says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name, which is above every name. Now, if we want to help people in poverty, we must have the attitude of Christ. We must be willing to wash dirty feet. The world's approach to this is to say to the poor, go look to the government, and to those who want to help, like we used to say in the military, when in danger, when in doubt, run and jump and scream and shout. But Jesus has another approach. He says in Mark 11, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek, I am humble, and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Just like Steve was teaching this morning in Sunday school. We've got to slow down sometimes. We've got to rest in Him. There is such great security and peace in Christ. When we're humble, we can have that peace. In that series on the Beatitudes, we also studied the key concept for this message today. And today we're talking about redemption and reconciliation and making peace. In Matthew 5.9, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. We know that Jesus is a peacemaker. Remember, He made peace by the blood of His cross to reconcile all things to Himself. In other words, by nature, we are all moral criminals worthy of death by hanging. But yet, nonetheless... God hung His own Son in our place. And He will pardon any of us who lay down our stubborn weapons of independence and come to Him admitting, I don't want to be at war. I want to be at peace with God. I surrender unconditionally. That's all it takes. Our God is a peace-loving and a peace-making God. The whole history of redemption climaxing in the death and resurrection of Jesus is God's strategy to bring about a just and lasting peace. Therefore, God's sons are that way as well. They have the character of their Father. What He loves, they love. What He pursues, they pursue. You can know His sons or His children by whether they are willing to make sacrifices for peace the way that He did. Now, Please understand that only the work of Christ on the cross pays the price for sin, and it is the Holy Spirit who draws people to Christ. In other words, we, in our efforts, should take no credit for saving someone. However, we cannot conclude from that fact that serving as a tool in making peace between God and man is not an intentional goal of a peacemaker. In fact, that may very well be the main point. 
Again, God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And we are ambassadors for Christ. That's pretty clear. In reality, no real peace is possible without a right relationship with God. When mature believers help the lost to understand and accept Christ's reconciliation, and we help weaker brothers walk in the light of God's ways, the most vital and lasting peacemaking takes place. Therefore, those who reach out to share the love of Christ with people wandering aimlessly through life without hope or purpose, either because of the shame of material poverty or the arrogance of wealth, these ambassadors are peacemakers in the highest sense. Now, it might be in foreign lands, like Bob Schneider, Larry and Sue, Phil and Deneen, and many others who have gone overseas. Or it might be here locally with some of you who have brought peace to folks in public schools, or at the rescue mission, or in prisons, or at work, or across the backyard fence. We are all called to be peacemakers. You know, one of the best ways to have fellowship, I found, at least for men, and I suspect this is true of women, is to work together for someone else. Some of my best memories are of planting trees in front of the rescue mission with the Riblins and the Pals and the Foremans and the Feekers and others. Or digging a ditch, a drainage ditch around a house in the mud with the men of Lion and Lamb. Or working on the medical clinic in, in Haiti with uh, Phil and Bill and Stan and Sam. You know, these are all great activities and it builds cohesiveness within the body and it should be encouraged. But one thing we cannot forget is that alleviating poverty through reconciliation of key relationships cannot be done without, poor, without people, poor or rich, accepting Christ as their Savior. Can governments and churches and nonprofits help people who do not become Christians? Well, sure. In the short term, to some degree, especially in relief in crisis situations. But as John Sr., one of my college professors, once said, helping a wino on the streets probably starts with buying him a cup of coffee. But that's not going to solve the problem. Remember, material poverty alleviation is to heal foundational relationships so that each may provide for their own through work as God called them, and therefore, and in that way, glorify and enjoy Him forever. If that is our goal, we've got to be intentional about presentation of the gospel as the most important part of ministry. Without becoming a new creature in Christ, none of the foundational relationships can truly be healed. I'm going to take a look at Romans 10 now, if you want to look there. And we want to clarify this through the Word. And there in uh, verse 12, Paul says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same, is Lord, the same Lord is Lord of all, 
abounding in riches for all who call on Him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Then Paul asks a series of rhetorical questions. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe Him in Him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Yeah, the Gospel must be presented in actions, in walk, in lifestyle, to be sure. However, this passage makes it clear that proclamation of the good news is vital to salvation. In the past, I have taught anyway, and I'm sure others have as well, that our walk talks louder than our talk talks. And to clarify further, I am not saying that we should therefore not talk. What what we are saying is that you can't stop with talking. We've got to walk the walk before we talk so that we will earn a hearing, and then after we talk so that they will know that we meant it. We never stop being ambassadors for Christ. The final point I want to make today is that faith comes from hearing. If all we do is walk a great walk, like the strong, silent type, and we never proclaim why we so walk, the observer will never know the source of our strength. They may even be deceived into thinking that I'm just a really good person. But if I'm truly walking the walk, I must also communicate that it is not me, but Christ in me that picks up and lays down one leg after another. Shifting topics here a little bit. There is sometimes an internal debate within the church about the role of parachurch organizations. And some argue that uh, ministry is the sole province of the church and that parachurch organizations siphon off resources and people and money and energy and time from the church. The other side will oftentimes counter that there would be no need for parachurch organizations if the church were meeting those needs. Well, I think both of these arguments miss the point. The fact is, the church must do its primary job well before it can or should attempt to do anything else. I view parachurch organizations as not as competitors, but as extensions of the church. They provide expertise, organization, and emphasis in particular areas of need. And it's through these groups that the church may extend and magnify its ministry through through members working within and alongside those organizations. That's why we are presenting different opportunities to this body each month. We want everybody here to be aware of the trusted ministries available to us in our community. It's our hope that the Holy Spirit will call all of us into some sort of ministry. That is how we can, as a body, best honor and glorify the Lord. On the other hand, the church has a specific purpose, which is to first worship the Lord, teach the Word of God, equip disciples, go out and make disciples of all nations, and hopefully tonight baptize folks who have made that decision.
as in Romans 10, how will they preach unless they are sent? The whole idea here about what we're talking about is not to merely extend a physical life beyond 15 or 20 years with a handout, but to be God's tools in the salvation of a soul for an eternity of worship of Him. That's the role that the church must not neglect. Therefore, the body of Christ, the church, has a vital role to play in the process of poverty alleviation. As members of the church work alongside, in and through these parachurch organizations, it is of utmost importance that we keep in mind that the gospel is our ultimate goal. If we neglect that goal, what's the difference between us and the government handing out money? And never addressing the underlying problem, which is the poverty of broken relationships. So, to sum up here, to relieve poverty, broken relationships have got to be healed. For broken relationships to be healed, we are called to make peace between God and man by proclaiming the good news. To be a peacemaker, we have got to be meek. To be meek, we must be poor in spirit, which is the first of the Beatitudes. We learn to be poor in spirit when we regularly yield our stubborn pride, when we, we remember that we owe all, including our eternal hope, to the Creator of the universe. That perfect gentleman, that spotless lamb who gave himself as a sacrifice, paid for our sins so that we might spend that eternity with people who were poor and rich on earth, worshiping our absolutely just, loving, and peacemaking Heavenly Father for eternity. Lord God, we do give praise to you. We ask, Lord, that you would instill in us, knock it into our noggins, Lord, that we cannot do this on our own. It only comes from you. Lord, help us to put aside the distractions of the world, the things, the wealth, the arrogance that we experience here in America and understand that we are all broken and we all need you. Just like poor people in other communities, in other neighborhoods, in other countries. For help us to understand that nothing will change for good until people come to understand their need for you to fully heal those relationships. Thank you, Father, for the privilege we've had today. We pray, Lord, that you would inhabit our praises. In Jesus' name, amen.